really nice. Uh, hey, this evening, I want, to, I want to start by kind of picking up right where we left off last night. If there was any questions or further discussion on any of the things that we've been talking about, um, I would love to do that up front. And then I want us to, to look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we'll see how far we get into that whole process of working through the days of creation and so on. Um, but as you are well aware so far, we have our movements on how to read the Bible. We have the historical, which is the text. And then the typological, where we look for Christ and his bride, the moral, and then the eschatological. The last, really, six weeks or so, I think it's been, we've been hanging out here in the typological on how to, to read the Bible, looking for the connections, the patterns, the rhythms of the text. If the Bible could be compared to anything, um, a helpful analogy would be to music, right? So we want to learn to listen to the music of the text, press our ear up to it, be able to hear the changes, hear the different keys and the different undertones and so on. Uh, so that's what we want to do as we mature as Bible readers, as Hebrews chapter 5 talks about. So we've been spending a lot of time with that. This is going to be our last week here, and next week we're going to move into the moral and then to the eschatological as we wrap up this class. So before we dive in to our content this evening, um, are there any remaining questions from overall thus far in this course or particularly from last week? You're all thinking I've slept since then. I have no idea what we even talked about last week. <laughs> that is fine. Aaron. This is actually related to what you preached on Sunday and using this on that. Okay. But this may be something very glaringly obvious, but I just want to make sure I'm on the same page. So you made the connection on Sunday to the seven, uh, to Christ being the seventh husband. Yeah. Is that a, that's a typological connection, correct? That's right. Yeah, but the way that that works is it's a typological, has typological significance for sure, but the connection is right there in the text, right? I mean, it's, she, she was married to five, and then she was living with another, which would be the sixth, so Jesus comes as the seventh. So it's certainly based here, but that number seven is the typological piece where we say, well, what does that mean, right? What does that mean even for this woman that she's about to be unified with uh, the seventh husband, the seventh day of creation, the, the rest that comes, the Sabbath rest. Her whole life has been looking for some sort of rest, and ultimately that comes in Christ. So, yeah. Good. Others? Yeah, yeah. so there's all sorts of errors if we start anywhere other than the text, right? So if, if we were to start in moral, then, then the Bible, we're just trying to shape to our own opinions or our own assumptions or convictions, and that's all, that we're, we're 
going in a completely wrong direction if we start anywhere else. But if we go from the text, assuming we start there, to the typological and not to the moral, and not to the eschatological, if we just go here, that becomes basically just an academic exercise, right? It's, it's just all in the head. It's almost a Gnostic sort of religion where I just need to know the right things. If I can know it, then that's all that really matters. It doesn't matter how it's lived out in my life. And as we will see next week when we get into the moral, moral is more than just right or wrong, right? It's how are we today formed by this? How is this shaping us in the way that we think? And how is our lives submitted to the text? So if we stay here and we don't go there, we basically just have academic Gnosticism, just loving the ideas and nothing more. If we skip this and go right to the moral, we end up with moralism or legalism. Moralism being, uh, I go to the Bible so I can just know what to do, what's right and wrong. I look for my answers there. Um, and I'm not really looking for Jesus. I'm not really looking for the story of redemption and how my life is to fit into that. Rather, I am just uh, going to find an answer to my problem. And then if we go from the text to an eschatological thing, without Christ and without this, then we, almost, we, we can call, fall into the same sort of challenge as uh, that would come if we just go to the typological, where it becomes very heady and very Gnostic, and, um, and then it can end up being an almost like an over-realized eschatology. And the prosperity gospel is a perfect example of this, right? The prosperity gospel, the only moral thing they care about is if you give them money. <laughs> and that's what gets you here. But um, they don't care about Jesus and they don't care about your life, right? So they just promise you something for the future based off of something in the text. So really, they probably actually work backwards at times. Um, so yeah, does that answer the question? Okay. Other questions or thoughts? Uh, when you look at the, the grammatical structure, mm -hmm. um, how do you balance that as far as understanding it in light of the grammatical structure, structure versus just your normal top to bottom reading? Uh, like how much emphasis goes into reading it in the way it's structured versus just the normal? So are you talking about if there's like a chiasm there or something. So yeah, I think paying attention to the, uh, and if I don't answer the question, ask it again. Um, but as you're reading through the passage, you wanna look for the structures which, which come out in all sorts of different ways. And we've talked about this, whether it be chiasm or parallelism, or you've got the sandwiches and you've got these inclusio sort of things. All of this stuff is working together within the text to highlight aspects of the text. So, the, um, the one example that I gave in Mark, where we have Jesus cursing the fig tree, right? And then he goes into the temple, and then he leaves the temple and comes back, and the fig tree has withered. Um, that is a sandwich. There's a structure there, right? So if we just read through it, top to bottom, and we don't see the structure, then we won't understand what that, what's going on in the temple or what's going on with the fig tree because we have to read them working together. Um, so we can know the stories and all that, but the meaning of it and the kind of the, the richness of it, we will completely miss. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I think so. Just so basically the structure gives us added meaning, meaning or 
Yeah. I th- Yeah, kind of. It, it's, I don't want to say it, it, it doesn't give more meaning. It makes clear the meaning that's there. So it's kind of like, remember uh, TV with the antennas, the rabbit ears, and it's all fuzzy? I mean, I remember we used to do this and have to hold it for a while in order to watch something so it'd be clear, right? So the structure is like the, the antennas that you want to you get the structure right so the picture can be clear, which is the text. Um, so if we're not paying attention, it's all fuzzy, then we're watching and say, yeah, I, I can kind of make out what's going on here, but we don't see it with the clarity that, that the structure brings out. Good question. Others? Yeah, I mean, one is just reading the Bible a lot. That, that's going to be the best way to do it. And another is um, read, still reading in community. So whether that community would be friends that can speak into it or church or whatever it might be, or even books, right? So commentaries and say, I want to, I want to, I want to know what the structure is of this text. And you can look at it and wrestle through it. And then you can, you know, read a, a guy who has got 15 PhDs and he can show you a structure. It's like, oh, wow, I wouldn't have seen that. Um, so then you go back and say, okay, do I see it now and, and work through it? So there's resources out there that can really help us see the structures within the text. Um, but as you're just doing your Bible reading, um, you want to get used to seeing that. So it just takes time just reading more and more. See, our relationship to the text and picking up on these things is far more relational than we realize that if we're start a relationship, like when you and James first met till now, you know each other better. You've gotten to know each other over the years. Your, your relationship has formed and changed in different ways. Um, and the things that you used to be shocked by or you're discovered, now it's, you, just, you just know it. So it's, it's very, we have a very much, uh, we have a very relational con- relationship. <laughs> I'm getting hung up on relational relationship <laughs> with the text uh, together. So it's, it's living and active, and we need to actually engage it in that dynamic sort of way to say this is a road that we're going to travel, and we're going to become well-acquainted friends and look for, for those structures as part of that. Church fathers do it a lot in different forms. The reformers do it quite a bit. All the medieval people do it. Um, most dead people do it. Then, then today, <laughs> today, Hans Borsma is really good at it. Peter Lightheart is really good at it. N.T. Wright does a great job with it. Um, biblical theologians do this really well, right? Biblical theologians look to see how the text is working back and forth with each other. Um, what's that? Yeah, Robert Jensen, if you dare read Robert Jensen. <laughs> um, there's some other, John Bear is another one who does this really well. Tim Keller does it 
in some of his books, he does a pretty good job of it. Um, James Hamilton is another more uh, popular guy that he, he does a good job with it. So a lot of people do it. Maybe not this exact structure, but they work through. Really, this, this here is, is what most people try to do within biblical theology. Hans Borsma, Peter Lightheart, N.T. Wright, and these other folks like that, they pulled this in really well also. So, yeah. If you want books on it, uh, um, Richard Hayes is another one. The Ladies for the Lowest Group, you're going, th- going through the Reading Backwards book by Richard Hayes, and that's, he's a master at this. He's very good. So. And if you want more, let me know, and I can recommend books to you. Anyone else? Okay. Well, if you have more questions, by all means, ask or comments or thoughts as we work through uh, our material for this evening. Okay, so one of the most enjoyable things, and Emily, this kind of goes back to, to your question on how do we look for these things. One of the, the themes in Scripture that you almost always want to see because you'll find it almost everywhere is the creation theme. And by creation, I mean the first three chapters. And you'll be surprised how often chapter four is pulled into the text as well. But the, the, the creation of the earth, the heavens and the earth, um, the creation of Adam, the, the rivers that flow from Eden, Eden itself, the garden, the two sacramental trees of life and the tree of knowledge, uh, to the creation of Eve, to the temptation. All of this stuff are themes that just explode all over Scripture. They, they are, it's everywhere. A lot of people will call Genesis 1 through 3 a prologue, that's what I call it, the prologue um, to the whole Bible, right? Because pretty much everything that the Bible has to say is found in those first three chapters in seed form. To one degree or another, those things are kind of brought out and, and um, developed throughout the Scripture. So I figured in our time this evening, we can work through these three chapters. We won't get through all three chapters, but we'll work through uh, the seven days of creation and then chapter two um, as much as we can and, and look for some of these themes. And, and that way, if we can have a good working knowledge of the first three chapters of Genesis then we'll be surprised how much uh, we'll find these themes echoing all throughout the scriptures. All right, so in your notes, I, I put up, or I gave you the, the, the little diagram there, the chart, the table, of how the days of creation are put together for us. And if you see that when we, there's a structure to these days as well. And there's also a chiasm within the days of creation which we're not going to get into tonight, but there's, there's multiple structures that we find without, within the, the scriptures. But this is, I think, a really helpful one to see how the days of creation work together, where you have day uh, one, two, and three on the left-hand column, uh, speaking of forming, right? It's, it's, it's taking hold of creation of something. It's speaking, and it's moving things around and putting things into the right place. And then, in days four, five, and six, you have a filling of that which has been formed. 
So you can think about it as God creates kingdoms, and then he fills those kingdoms with kings. All right, and then you have correspondence. So day one, you create light. That corresponds across to day four, where you have the sun, the moon, and the stars, those things in the sky that give off light. Day two, you have the expanse or the firmament or the heaven is what it's called. And then in day five, you have the birds and the fish. Now, the expanse is the separation of the waters. So you have the waters underneath and the waters above. And then in the um, waters underneath, that's where you have the fish. And then he focuses his attention to the dry ground or to the waters below in day three, and he separates the waters below and causes dry ground to appear. And then we see in day six, that which uh, populates the dry ground is man and the land animals or the land beasts. Okay? So this is just a really helpful way to see how the creation days work together. And then day seven, of course, is the Sabbath day, the day of God's rest. So let's look at the first two verses. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We could probably, if we ask the right questions and, and just spend enough time together tonight, we could probably talk for the next hour just on these two verses. Without any notes, just going back and forth, asking questions. Where else do we see this, these themes in the Bible? And we, we could spend a lot of time just talking about these two verses. So we won't do that, but we'll spend a little bit of time. I think the first thing to notice is, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth. I think it's, it's interesting here because he creates two things right at the beginning. And these two things are two things that are meant to go together. The heavens and the earth. There's actually a covenantal sort of language that goes on when God speaks of a relationship between two things. It would be like God and his people, um, Yahweh and Israel, Christ and his bride, husband and wife, right? These two things go together in a covenantal sort of way, right? So there's a relationship between the heavens and the earth. And we will get into that. Notice it doesn't just say he created the universe, which he could have said, and that would have incorporated all of this. But no, he mentions two things, heaven and earth. And then he focuses on the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What, what do you see here that seems interesting or familiar or whatever it might be? Where else might we see some of the language even in verse 2 in the Scriptures? Okay, we'll figure it out as we go. <laughs> All right, there's two problems here. Do we see the two problems? There are two problems with this verse, not actual problems, but problems that God is about to solve. For one, the earth is formless and void, or without form and void, right? There's a formlessness that's going on here, and there's darkness, okay? 
So you got heaven and earth. When we look at the earth, now we have formlessness and darkness. These are not things that are in keeping with God's revelation of himself, right? When we see this, knowing what we know about the Bible, we can say, oh, God, you're about to fix that because that's not how you do things, right? Um, some people will call, call the formlessness and voidness chaos, right? It's, it's the chaos that existed before creation. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Where else do we see the, the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters? What? Jesus' baptism. baptism, absolutely. And did somebody say something else also? Or did everybody say baptism? Right, the, the Holy Spirit comes down as a dove, kind of hovers over, the, the sky's open, and God speaks. Yeah. The other one would be the Exodus story, right? When they're going through, the, the pillar of cloud goes, and it's the same sort of language that the cloud hovered over the waters. Um, so we've got this sort of language already coming out in verse 2. All right, so what we see happening here is uh, God is about to take care of the two problems in the first three days of creation. There's a formlessness and there is a darkness that's going on here. Um, before we go on to that, I want to come back to the heavens and earth piece. It said how they go together. The earth and the heavens are related to each other throughout the Bible in a lot of different ways, right? One of the most important ways that I, that I think we need to, to wrestle with as we become Bible readers is the heavens are a mature, perfect version of what the earth is to be, all right? So it's almost like he creates the heavens, that which is the perfect example, and then he creates the earth, that which is the immature. It's not there yet, but it's the possibility, the, the, the telos of earth is to become like heaven. Now, the reason we can say this is because at the end, in Revelation, this is what we see happening. Heaven and earth are fused together. And we see this sort of language throughout the Bible of earth being formed by the pattern of heaven, right? We see this with the tabernacle where Moses looked up, and Hebrews tells us this, that he saw the pattern that was given to him from heaven of what it should look like. Um, we see this with the Lord's Prayer, right? We are to pray that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what's going on in heaven is what should be going on on earth. Earth is maturing, it's to grow, it is to expand, it's to become like heaven. So right here we see the heavens and the earth, that relationship given to us. Um, in the rest of the Bible, we also see that when heaven opens up, we see models that we are to reproduce on earth. One is the tabernacle. Two is the temple when David has the plans. And, and three, we also see this in Revelation, that Revelation um, presents John almost as a divine architect similar to Moses and, and David who looks at what's going on in heaven and says this is what ought to be going on on earth. Right? So the call to the churches is to imitate what's going on in heaven. And church is to, be, to imitate what's going on in heaven. If, if the, the angels of God are forever singing praises to 
around the throne of, of Christ, we are to imitate that by joining them with our voices and joining them um, to sing praises to God. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. Yeah, I, I think that's right, Aaron. I think the, we see pictures of it being unified in the Holy of Holies, right? Um, we see it on Mount Sinai where the glory of God descends, and now you have heaven and earth coming together, which is also where he gets the law and the instructions for the tabernacle and so on. And the temple with the fire that comes down from heaven uh, and fills the temple Right, You see heaven and earth being fused together, but when Christ comes, he comes bringing heaven to earth. <laughs> right, And now he is doing the work through his people to um, colonize earth, as some would say, to make it look more like heaven, and to shape it and to form it. Right? Good. Other thoughts on that? Yeah. We get the creation and then the filling, you know, placing the creatures or the sun and stars to rule what was created in the first place. We never get, uh, you think about that fulfillment of heaven in the Bible. I mean, other, we have the purge in the sky, but the third heaven, I guess, and we never see any of that. Is that mm -hmm. because that is God's in that place fulfilling that? We're supposed to take that? Yeah, I think that the, what we'll see is that the filling that's going on on earth that he does in creation ultimately is to be, um, as we take dominion, as he says in, in chapter 1, we are to take dominion of all the earth, is that we are to take what God has, has given us, has filled the earth with, we are to take it and we are to then submit it to him um, and bring it under dominion, bring it under the rule of Christ. Uh, and, and in doing that, that models what, what, what is in heaven. But as far as the furniture, are, is that what you're referring to? Like what's in heaven? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, there's not a lot on that. The eternality of God, when he creates the heavens and the earth, yeah, the eternality of, of God is kind of assumed. And this is why he goes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, he goes directly to the earth, right? And says, now this is where we're focusing here, um, which is probably good for us as well. But yeah, it's a good question. Anna? Mm -hmm. and then yeah. No, you're right. Okay. You're right. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, no. It's good. 
And it's, it's, it's challenging. There are four layers to Hebrew cosmology as we think about how the Old Testament tells us how the Bible is put together for us, right? I don't know, maybe. <laughs> Basically, it, it looks something like um, if you have the universe is something like this, right? In Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, and so on and so forth. Then you have this, and it's a big watery mass, essentially. Then you have the separation where you have um, a firmament put into, into the middle of it, which is this, which is what we would call heaven, right? And we'll get into the firmament as we go through the days of creation. Hopefully this brings some clarity. Um, but if you think about this as being heaven, and then you have the earth, which is formed, and then the earth you have, you know, the waters and the separated from the, the land, and so on. And then you have what's under the earth, which is actually more water, is basically how, how it's thought of. Um, so under the earth. So you have a three-story house. You have the heavens, which is the third story. You have the second story, which is the earth. And then you have uh, the basement, essentially, which is the waters under the earth, which should be one. Now, the fourth layer is, is what the, the heavens points us to. It is, it is what draws our eyes up, and what we see is the curtain in front of the Holy of Holies, if, if that makes sense. So when you look at the curtain, and this is what the, the word firmament actually means, curtain, right? Um, it's this layer, it's a shell. It's, when we look up at night and we see the stars kind of stuck in the big black thing up there from the Lion King, that, that is... That's the firmament, that's the heavens, okay? When we go outside and it's day and we see the blue, that's the firmament, that's the heavens. But it's the curtains to what's, what's behind that. So it's all the heavens, if you would. Um, but this is, this is the, the idea of this is where, or beyond that, is where God is. And it's, it's far less of an actual spatial issue than it is a symbolic understanding of, of who God is. Yeah, gets yeah, yeah. It's like the like the curtain in the temple when it was torn, which in Mark's gospel is really cool because the word for torn is only used twice. Once is at his baptism, when the heavens are torn and God speaks, and then the second is when he is on the cross and the curtains are torn, and then the, so the holy of holies, if you would, that's God's dwelling place, is then opened. Okay. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, certainly not scientific. It's I would say it's more truthful than science. <laughs> Seriously, though, you know, it's like if. There was the one astronaut who went to the other side of the moon and said, ah, I looked and I didn't see God there sort of thing. Um, he must not exist. It's like such a small, science has such a small view of what truth actually is as it relates to God's existence and so on. 
So the Bible loves to use language to say this is what it's like, right? And, and, and creation is part of the vocabulary of that language, of what, what it is like. Yeah. Is there any other clarity that I can try to muddy up before we go on? <laughs> Okay. Uh, one other thing to, to note on oh, here it is. On this, and this is a, just a practical piece that I think it's helpful for us to think about. It says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God is present before creation is even brought into form. Right? The Spirit of God is the active agent in creation. Uh, the Spirit of God is, I don't want to say he's, it's not that he's built into creation, but he, he, God's hands are all over creation through his Spirit. So the idea that the earth is somehow void of God's Spirit or that we have to invite God's Spirit to a certain place or that um, for us to... Uh, to be con connected or commune with the Spirit of God is to somehow ascend to another place is, is crazy talk, right? So from the very beginning, and then, I mean, even when we look at the seven days of creation, or the six days, the Spirit of God is the one that is forming these things, right? God speaks, the, that spoken word is the Son, and the actual forming is the Spirit of God who is hovering. So he is in and through creation always, which is a really important thing for us when we think about what it is to um, think about the presence of God and to think about his role. He's not the deistic God that is somehow away from his creation in any way, shape, or form, right? But he has been intimately present before it was even formed that he was, he was right there. He never needs to enter the creation. Um, he's been with her from its beginning. All right. So when we think about the, the days of creation, there's a lot of discussion around verses 1 and 2 and the first day, right? So you have almost this introduction in verses 1 and 2, and then the big question is, is there some sort of gap in time between verse 2 and verse 3, where we have the formal days of creation beginning, and God said, let there be light. I don't have a clue what is gained with an answer to this question. Other than, there's some that would say, well, the earth with, with, with science and aging and all that, it's definitely older than 6,000 years. So this would actually give us biblical warrant to be okay with the science that's out there. Uh, that, that's fine. Um, there could be a billion years between verse one and two, or verse two and three, or it could be the same day, right? Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That, that creating process is part of the very first day of creation. Um, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but that's a very hot topic uh, within creation theory and whether you're looking at old earth or young earth or uh, creation versus uh, theistic evolution, all of these things that are out there, it, so much of the conversation comes down to this question. And I don't think it's all that helpful, to be honest with you. When, if we're going to submit ourselves to the text, um, I don't see any problem with seeing this as 
day one starts at verse one, but if there is a space and time between two and three, there's, there's no real struggle with that either. So let's go on. Let's assume it's all one day, and we will move on from there. So day one, God says in verse three, let there be light, and there was light. Here's the big question that will get a lot of creation um, holding convicted Bible-believing Christians hung up. It says, where on earth did light come from if the sun, the moon, and stars is not created till day four? Okay, but how do we get that from the text? What's that? He's there, his presence is there, yeah. I agree with you that God is the light. But where do we get it from the text? And thankfully, Psalm 104 is a divine commentary on creation. If you haven't read Psalm 104, I would encourage you to do it. But Psalm 104 can actually be troubling for us at times because it says that there's death before the fall, which is pretty interesting. Anyways, Psalm 104, in the first two verses... It starts off like this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. So right there, we actually have a reason to say the spirit that is hovering over the deep, over the waters, in the darkness, he is actually the light. When God says, let there be light, it is the spirit of God that illuminates all of creation. And throughout the Bible, we also see that the spirit of God is associated with light, whether it be the association with the candles in the tabernacle. Um, He's associated with oil, which keeps those candles going. Um, He is associated with light when the glory of God comes down upon The tabernacle, after it is finished, it comes down in the form of fire from heaven, right? This is a theophany, God's spirit. The pillar of fire is light. The fire that comes down from heaven in the temple and blows the doors off of it, or the people have to fall back, get burnt up, right? The Holy Spirit is constantly associated with light. So when it says, in the beginning, um, God created the heavens and the earth, and the spirit is present, and then he says, let there be light. We say, oh, wait, there's no sun, moon, or stars, Uh, We say, oh, hold on, but the Spirit is there, right? And then Psalm 104 explicitly says that he covers himself with light as he's introducing the creation narrative. All right. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Here is another covenantal thing that's going on in creation, that there is a tearing apart of light and darkness. He is separating these two things, and we see this theme continuing throughout the creation story. God called the light day. This is also important to realize for later that God called, right? He named this thing. He named it day. It's not assumed, but he says, no, this is day. And the darkness he called night. So he names the day and he names uh, the night, names the light and names the darkness. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. The second day, let there be an expanse. This is where the firmament comes This is verses 6 through 8. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters 
from the waters. So if I was to try to write this a little bit better, if you think about this as being the being the creation in the first couple verses, right? And the whole thing is a watery blob at this point, formless. How does he begin to form it? He says, let there be light. So you have light that begins to shine. He says, okay, now we have light and we've separated the light and the darkness. Now what do I do with this formless blob? Well, he makes an, expan- uh, an expanse, a firmament. He separates the waters above from the waters below. Okay, so this is the first thing he does. He, in the same way that he tore the, the dark and light apart, now he tears the waters apart, okay? Separates them. And notice that in day one, he solves the first problem from verse two. Do you remember the first problem? It was darkness was over the face of the deep, so we have darkness as the first problem. And then um, the formlessness. Earth was without form and void. That's the other problem. So he solves the problem of darkness in day one, when he says, let there be light. And then in day two, he begins to solve the formlessness piece. Right? So darkness and, and formlessness, he begins to bring form to it. And this goes through day two and three. Okay? So when we think about the firmament, again, I already talked about it a little bit, we want to think about it as... It's like a shell. It's a blanket. Symbolically, it is the same thing that covers the Holy of Holies, right? If we see the temple and the tabernacle as being a mini creation, a mini cosmos, uh, and, and, and it is as you walk through it. You see the elements of creation all the way through, and then as you get right to the gate of heaven, what blocks us is this curtain, and that curtain is the firmament. And the, again, the word means curtain or shell or firmament and so on. Okay, Now, one of the cool things that, that takes place over the course of history that we see that the relationship between heaven and earth is one where earth is to be patterned after, grow up into heaven. Right? So th- that curtain, at some point, in an eschatological sort of theology, must be removed so earth and heaven can be completely fused together. Okay, so this is what we long for, and this is what we see happening at the end of Revelation, is that firmament is removed. It's now a new heavens and a new earth, and they are brought together. There's no sun because the glory of God is in that place, and we are dwelling with God. Um, it is almost like in the, the remodeling or the recreation of heaven and earth, um, he takes hold of the Holy of Holies, and he pulls it apart and expands it to where that is the entire creation now, is the Holy of Holies, heaven and earth fused together. So when we see the firmament, even when we go outside tonight and you look up and you see the stars and you say, that's, that's the curtain, that's the firmament, that's, what's, that's the barrier, if you would, that it should always be a reminder to us of the hope that we have that is to come, that one day that will be torn apart and heaven and earth will be fused together. Uh, and what a glorious day that will be. All right, so we want to notice again the separations of, of the water in the same way as the, day, or the, the night was separated. We also see separations in covenantal language uh, constantly. Um, I think he says it, yeah, here. And let it separate the waters from the waters. 
So the separation, I mean, you see this with Adam and Eve, right? That Adam is separated and his bone is separated from him uh, in order to form Eve, the covenant of marriage. We see this with Abraham when God makes a covenant where those animals are separated and God goes through it. Uh, we see this in the, in the sign of circumcision, that a piece of skin is separated that shows the, the covenant that's taken place, right? The covenants are always separating. They're cutting. There's a, there's a removal um, that's going on. But it's, it's a removal not to get rid of, but to form a new relationship between the two parties, right? So it is, uh, it is to say within circumcision, without going into any of the graphic details. But really what it's saying is there's now a new confidence, a new trust that God is the one who will provide, right? This new relationship through the covenant of circumcision is to say, I trust God that he will be the one to provide basically Isaac. Because if you remember, the sign of circumcision came right after Abraham sinned with Hagar, tried to take the promises of God into, onto himself, says, no, 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 let's, let's do this covenant right, and there's a cutting that takes place, and now the promise is God and Abraham saying, I will do this. Same with husband and wife, and, and so on. So we got this covenantal language already in creation through the, the separation that takes place here. Okay, uh, and then of course, within the sacrificial system, all the animals are always cut up, they're separated, uh, the entrails are removed, the, um, the blood is removed, that there's this constant separating that's going on, which is key to covenantal understanding of what's going on here. Okay, uh, thoughts on day two? The second day. The firmament. Okay. Day three, the third day. Let, waters, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And God said, well, and then it was so. I just read the verse. One thing that that's, we need to realize about this is, in Psalm, again, in Psalm 104 and, and here, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. What, what does the moving in this relationship we often think that the land appears out of the water and then the waters kind of form around the land. That's not what goes on. He actually pushes back the waters and causes them to, to move and shift. Psalm 104 talks about this. I won't get into it now. But the, the waters are what he is moving around so that the land might appear. The third day, as he separates the water, in order to bring land. This is another separating. And it is also uh, the, 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 the final solution to the formlessness issue from verse two. Right? So we have the formlessness and the darkness. The darkness is taken care of day one. The formlessness is, begins to take place as, becomes resolved as the firmament comes. So we see some form. And then on the earth itself, we see the water separating so that the dry ground can appear. Okay. So, yeah. There's, there's, obviously, there's some connection to Exodus there, correct? What connection? Like, if God is pushing the waters and forming them by pushing away, pushing them away so that they can appear, I mean, that sounds to me like part of the Red Sea. Right. That's exactly right. So then what, how would we want to read... The Exodus story. Yeah, it's a new creation. Exactly. 
yeah, whenever you see that sort of, those sort of things happening, it's, oh, this is, this is echoing back to creation. There's something new happening here. And absolutely, you have the, the birth of Israel coming through the Red Sea. That's a good, good connection. Also notice how day three patterns day two in the same way that earth patterns heaven. Day two, you have a separation of the waters, right, above and below. So what takes place in the heavens is then focused on the earth, and that same separating of waters takes place. So earth is patterning itself after heaven in that sense as well. That's not the only thing that happens. We also see that on day three, that the earth begins to sprout vegetations, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on earth. And it was so. So not only do we have dry ground appearing in day three, but we also have vegetation taking place, right? Vegetation and plants are a way that God likes to glorify things. Right? He glorifies his temple with this sort of stuff, with the right kind of wood. And um, he glorifies his earth with flowers and fruits and trees and wonderful smells, and it looks good. This is what he does. This is how he likes to uh, make his creation work. And these trees come from the ground. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed. So we have two different things going on here. The first is vegetation. And the second, which is plants yielding seed, and fruit trees. Right? So you have vegetation and fruit trees. Now, shrubbery is not yet a thing. Right? Which is interesting to note because he's very specific here. It's vegetation and it's fruit trees. Shrubbery comes later. In fact, chapter 2, uh, verse 5, tells us this. Chapter 2, verse 5, when no bush of the field was uh, yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord, had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Right. So not yet has there been shrubbery, but in day three, he actually creates the fruit trees and vegetation. The word for vegetation is actually grass, right? It's, it's like wheat, grain, this sort of thing. And then fruit trees are just that, fruit trees. So within the creation week, we have this thing of grain and fruit, which are two things like heaven and earth that so often go together. And where, where might we see it? Grain and fruit. If you were to take hold of those two things and make something better out of them, bread and wine. Yeah, you got bread and wine. Very intentional right here at the beginning. Before we even get to the creation of man, you have this sacramental notion of what's going on. We see this represented in the, um, in the tabernacle and in the temple. When you walk in to this new creation, this little cosmos that's going on, you walk in and you turn and you see the table of showbread, which also had a pitcher of wine on it for the libation, right? So there's bread and wine there. There's bread and wine in the communion Meal, Lord's Supper, and then we see, very specifically, vegetation, which is, again, wheat, grass, grain-type things, and then fruit trees, where we would get 
wine. Yeah, I think maybe a little bit, but <laughs> no, I'm being honest. Um, but I think, I, but I think it matters as it relates to the fruit trees aspect of what's going on, because though vines are from, or excuse me, grapes are from vines, what we see within the the process of that drink is the fruit piece of it. So. Yeah, if we, if we get down to the, the literal nitty-gritty of it, say, well, technically, it's not a tree, it's a vine. Um, yeah, I think there's something to that. But here's another cool thing. In fact, I think there's an, something else going on, and it would be maybe olive trees, right? Because you have oil, right? Which is also a really big thing. So you have bread and wine for communion, and you have oil, which is used for anointing, and light, liquid light, right? That's what James Jordan says, and I liked it. But I also think we can, we can do this well because when we look back to Psalm 104, which is that divine commentary on creation, verse 14, he says, you, ca- you cause the grass to grow for the livestock, the plants for man to cultivate. So he's in that day three sort of language that he may bring forth food from the earth and Wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make the face shine, and bread to strengthen the man's heart. So in Psalm 104, you have wine, bread, and oil all represented on that kind of third day piece. Uh, So then I would say, I think we can call it wine from the the fruit trees. (laughs) I think the psalmist does so. But also maybe olive trees, right? So these, these things that are really significant throughout Israel's history and throughout the, the church's history and in our life, um, was planned and, and planted, if you would, uh, on the third day of creation for us to see. Also, uh, it's almost like an out-of-focus picture, too, like very general language. Like he's not being specific because the earth is being formed by the well. Yeah, yeah, yep, that's good. That's good. All right, other questions on day three or thoughts? Yeah. 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 That's good. That's good. And it, it is important to know, Kaylee, on that as well. Is let the earth sprout these things. All right. What else comes from the earth? It's the only other thing in the creation story that explicitly comes from the earth. Man, Adam, right? So Adam, and, and this is also a, a helpful thing for us to understand. If the, if the trees and the grain are to produce fruit and things that are, give man strength, like bread and gladdens the heart, like wine, and is used for anointing, like oil, and makes the face shine, um, if those things are to come up from the dirt, to glorify God's creation, how much more should our lives be filled with fruit that glorifies God, right? We are 
like these plants, like these trees, which is why people and trees are always paralleled. Psalm 1, right? Um, how does this start? Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the wicked, nor sits in the seat of sinners, or stands in the, or I don't get that mixed up. But he is like a tree that is planted by streams of water, right? He is like a tree that is planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in its season, and its leaves do not wither. And all that he does, he prospers, right? We see this constantly, that people and trees are somehow analogous. They connect to each other, and they both produce fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches, John 15. So even we see, we see this sort of stuff in seed form again all the way back in the days of creation. So, good. Other thoughts? Okay, let's move on. Day four. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Now, notice now we have moved past the forming part of, of our notes on page one. Days one, two, and three take care of the two problems of, of verse two. The darkness, that's gone because of, of the light. The formlessness, that's been taken care of through the forming with the expanse and then the, the dry ground. And now he wants to begin to fill what he has formed. All right, so on day four, corresponds to day one. Day one was the light. Day four is the lights that, in the expanse of the heavens uh, that separate day and night, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Um, then he goes on that there's a function to these as well. First of all, again, let's notice the separation here, so more of that, that separating language. He says, and let them be for signs and for seasons and days and years. What, what is he doing here? Why is he saying this? Yeah. 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 He, he puts things into motion in a very significant way, I think, in day four. And part of that is even for, you know, the farmer cultivating his land, the seasons that come um, from the tides in the ocean to the different seasons. And then we have God's people in the Old Covenant um, instituting their calendar around these things, right? So you have the different um, Hebrew months that represent the different uh, festivals and so on. We know when, um, we know that, Israel begins to suffer when they don't pay attention to these things, right? When they don't walk faithfully as God has designed it, as he has orchestrated it, if you would, in creation and what's been instituted through, through the creation into his law, into the liturgy of, the, of, of Israel. When that is abandoned, you are living contrary to the way you were created, contrary to creation. So we have these sort of functions that the creation plays, and this function is to help us, is to aid us. It is to guide us somewhere. As the law guides us to Christ, we'll see that creation itself guides us to Christ. Then he says, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens and give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, that'd be the sun, 
and a lesser light to rule the night. That would be the moon. Now, I think the, one of the important things here is to understand this word here, to rule. Right? To rule. The, the, the sun and the moon are not only just lights, but they actually have this ruling sort of function. They govern the night. They govern the day. And this is why throughout the Bible, when we see the sun and the moon and the stars beginning to crumble, to go dark, to fall, this is not speaking of the world itself falling or the, the cosmos being ripped apart, but it's speaking of rulers who are symbolized by these things, they are falling, right? So uh, let's, if you have your Bibles, go to Isaiah 13, I think it's 13. I'll write it down. Isaiah 13. And verse 10 says, for the stars of the heavens in their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And you go down verse 13. Therefore, I will make the heavens uh, tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And there's, there's more throughout that as well. But what is he talking about here? Is he talking about some sort of apocalyptic event that takes place? No, he's talking about Babylon, right? Babylon's falling, and Babylon is associated with the sun and the moon. It's, it's associated as the whole earth. This thing is shaking. This thing is falling. It is a, a little world unto itself. So when we see what's called decreation language in the Bible, where it looks like what creation did is now falling apart, this is almost always, if not always, speaking of earthly kingdoms, sometimes even the nation of Israel, oftentimes the nation of Israel. Um, Jeremiah, I think this is a striking passage in Jeremiah 4. We have the same sort of decreation language. Yeah, Jeremiah 4, verses 23 through 26 and this is almost like reading the creation story backwards, <laughs> right? He says in verse 23, Jeremiah 4, verse 23, I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void and the heavens, uh, and to the heavens and they had no light. I looked on the mountains and behold, they were quaking and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked and behold, there was no man and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked and behold, the fruitful land was a desert. And all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. That is like, you know, you press rewind on, on Genesis and it just, it's a total decreation narrative. And what is it speaking of? Israel's fall to Babylon, right? They are just about to go into exile here. They actually do while Jeremiah is still alive. It's right on the, right on the pinnacle so this decreation language throughout the Bible grabs hold of this function of the sun and the moon in the creation story, that they are to rule, they are to govern. So rulers and governments are often associated with the sun, the moon, and stars. Even today, this is why we have stars and moons and suns on flags. Right? We have 50 stars, there's a reason for that. We're speaking of 
uh, this sort of ruling function. It's, yeah, go ahead, expound that. Yeah. Yeah, I, yes. And, and the, um, where is it? It talks about and kings come from him. Is that? Yes, it is. Um, and, and in that dialogue, he says to look at the, the sky and count them if you can. And there's also that piece where you look at the sand on the seashore, right? And count those. So it's both. So there's this innumerable amount of sand. And then you look up and there's an innumerable amount of stars. But the innumerable piece is actually talking about the rulers that will come from, from Abraham, which when we look at who we are in Christ, we are lights to the nations. We are lights in dark places. We are like those stars. We are to shine and we are to uh, take hold of creation and pattern it after heaven. This is the task of the church in many ways. So it, it connects back to that. That's a good thought. Other thoughts? Yeah, yeah, and and I um, I don't obviously know his point to that, right? But but I would say that the premise is absolutely true. In fact, to say otherwise would almost be crazy to think that there's no order, there's no there's no movement, there's no um, there's an orchestrator, there's an architect to all of this, right? And as as everything is moving in the universe, and I, I did some study on this a while ago, so without all of the astrology, right, and the assumptions that are made of that, there is uh, the ancients, particularly, as they looked at the stars, that is how they understood how things were to, to progress and move, depending on the stars, and it is a very long clock. There's little clocks, there's small clocks, there's big clocks, there's, sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You pay attention to it and you can go back and say, this, these are where the stars were at this time at this day. And it's because there's an order to it for sure. And I think that order started at day four of creation, right? This is, it's like, it's like if he was to take, take all of the things that he did, uh, make the expanse, the firmament, put the earth in there, separate the waters, have some trees growing, put some sun, moon, and stars. And it's almost like he just goes, like that, right? And, and everything just starts working and orchestrating and moving and, and so on. And, and in fact, um, there's a verse in Isaiah that, that speaks to this a little bit. Isaiah 40. Is it Isaiah 40. Okay, yeah. Isaiah 40, verse 22. He says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. All right, so spreads out the heavens like a curtain, okay? This word um, curtain is not the same as firmament, but it's, it's close. But this, it's only used this one time in, in the whole Bible. And it means incredibly thin, like a layer of dust sort of thin, right? It is, it is this t- super thin thing. So he, he takes this 
He lays out the heavens like this curtain, very, very thin. And then what does he do with it? He then spreads them like a tent to dwell in. So how do you take this thing that's so thin, that's spread out, and then to spread it into a, into a, a tent? So it's almost like if he was to lay it out on day four, and then he pushes it out, right, this ferment, this thin layer, and he expands it with all the stars just go right where they're supposed to be. And then uh, this could, could back up, what was that theory called? Red something, where it all, everything, that moment where all things supposedly began and started moving and the universe is expanding. Red, no, nothing? Blue? Is it green? So it's like, it doesn't matter. Anyways, when they try to go back and try to figure out, okay, where, where does all this come from? There is a moment that they say something started here, right? Something began to work here. And, and I think this verse here, um, along with, with uh, Genesis, the fourth day, speak to that, right? That God put everything in place, and then on day four, he put it into motion. And that's where all of the, the 24 hours begins. That's where the firmament and uh, the, the celestial bodies and galaxies and atmospheres and tides and all of the movement, that thin layer was then spread into a tent as it goes infinitely high and infinitely wide to incorporate. All right. Yeah, as far as like a 24-hour day. Yeah, like how do we classify if this, if this is when days are kind of made, for lack of a better term, how can we say that there's been three of them already recorded already? Because the Bible says so. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I, I don't think that God needs, so, so whether those days are literal 24-hour days, particularly for the first three, um, we have no reason to believe no, even though there's no moon and there's no rotations going on, there's no tides going on. Um, but the Bible says that there's day one, two, and three. So I would, I would love to get into that more at some point because there's all sorts of stuff as far as theories of creation. You've got this framework theory where you have these days, the, the Hebrew word for day is yom, and a yom can be anything from a 24-hour period in the Bible to a very long season. Um, so some people will say, well, those first, those first few days cannot be 24-hour days because there was no sun, moon, and stars. And without the sun, moon, and stars, we cannot possibly have a 24-hour day. And there's great discussion around all of that, but for another day, for another 24-hour day, <laughs> we will have that discussion. Can I remind you that our day is <laughs> No, Joe, you may not. <laughs> <laughs> The fifth day. <laughs> the fifth day is strangely and notoriously short and absent and almost, it's very hard to figure out the fifth day in most creation patterns in the Bible, right? So in Mark's gospel, for example, you have a seven-day week that takes place from from Mark chapter 1 all the way to the resurrection. The resurrection is the seventh day. It all takes place at night, and you have these different time markers, and then each section you can actually correspond to the seven days of creation in Mark's gospel. The fifth day is so hard to figure out, and whenever we see fifth day or creation weeks patterns in the Bible, 
oftentimes it's very easy to get, oh, there's day one, two, three, four. How does this connect to the fifth day? So it's just a strange, it's a strange one typologically for the Bible. Um, but it's an important one. Where would we be without a fifth day? All right, Genesis 1, 20 says, And God said, Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures. This is one for the kids that are in here. This word here literally means dragons. Okay? It is sea dragons, sea monsters. It is... Uh, um, Tessim, Tessin in, in Hebrew, and it means dragons. So when we see sea creatures like this, it's like, oh, that's such a weak, <laughs> a, a weak translation of what that word is actually talking about. Um, so anyways, that's, that's a great one. Sea dragons or dragons, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And then this is one of the interesting things, is God blesses the fifth day. This is the first blessing that comes up, where he says, And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. So you have the same language that comes the next day, where Adam and Eve are called to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill. Some would say that this blessing of day five actually extends into day six, where it would also cover the land animals as well. So there wouldn't be this idea of, well, the birds are blessed to be fruitful and multiply. The fish are blessed to be fruitful and multiply. Humans are blessed to be fruitful and multiply. But those poor land animals and those creepy crawler things, they are not blessed to be fruitful and multiply. So some would say this blessing extends on to to the next. Um, Then, of course, I mean, if we were to follow these things through, um, birds have a, a huge role within the Bible, um, even, even the, t- the tabernacle itself had this um, occasion that birds were often in the tent, right? And there was a certain um, practice that took care of, of cleaning up the birds, and they, the birds would represent the Spirit of God, and the, the, the high priest actually had what they would call wings on their things. They were like these birds or these angels that would move back and forth into the tabernacle and so on. Um, the Holy Spirit, of course, is signified as a, as a bird or a dove, at Jesus' baptism, um, the way that they swarm, and the, the fish also swarm in this sort of way. Uh, the, the, the glory cloud of God is seen as doing that same sort of swarming. So you've got all of this connection with creation as God is revealing himself, saying, that's kind of like me, and this is kind of like me, and that's kind of like me. Um, so we, we see this um, throughout the scriptures with a connection with the Holy Spirit and, and birds, which is kind of cool. And God himself, I mean, he talks about him being uh, an eagle, right, in Isaiah, and he will cover us in his wings. And Jesus says that he is like a hen that would cover his chicks. So there's all of these, these connections throughout the Bible with, with birds. Okay, let's move on to the sixth day, the greatest day, where we have the creation of the land animals and, of course, Adam and Eve. All right, Adam and Eve are created uniquely within the creation story because they are the only ones that are created in the image of God. Right? They are image bearers of God. And in this image, they are to take dominion. They are to be fruitful and to multiply, and they are to fill the earth. And they are to fill the earth with the image of God. Right? When kings, when 
um, the Caesars or Alexander the Great would conquer land, he would put his image in all of the areas that he conquered. So when people would come to this place, they would see his image and say, oh, I know, I know who rules here, right? This is, the same, this is the same practice that Genesis 1 is telling us that God wants to see happen. We are his image, and he sends us into the earth. So where we go, we are to say God rules here. This is God's land. This is God's world. And that is one of the beautiful callings of image-bearing uh, that we need to come to grips with, is understanding this calling to actually image God, to bear him. In fact, the second commandment, I shall not take the Lord's name in vain, um, we often think about that as swearing, right? Using God's name as a swear word, which is wrong. And there's plenty of scriptures that talks about this, but that's not actually what the second commandment is talking about. This, this translation is, do not bear God's name in vain. That's what the Hebrew says. Saying, you are a bearer of God's name. You are an image bearer. When you go and you have God's name upon you, do not do that in vain. That is detestable to him. That if we were to, as image bearers of God, actually bear the image of Satan or, the, or, or this world or some other person or thing, right? We are to bear God's name. And that's one of the greatest callings within the commandment. I am the Lord your God, right? Don't worship anything else and do not bear my name in vain. You carry it, do so faithfully. There's a great book that just came out on that calling uh, Bearing God's Name, I think is the title of the book. I have it if you're interested. I can show it to you. Okay, so yes, image bearers. Chapter 2 begins to, to dive in, and, and we're going to wrap up with this actual image bearing, or this creation of Adam and Eve piece here. Chapter 2 uh, dives into detail on the sixth day where Adam and Eve are made. And you have the garden there, you have these trees, you have um, the, the, um, the four rivers that flow out of the single river that comes from Eden and spreads out into four and goes, goes forward. Um, all of this is put into the context of the creation of, of Adam, right? He creates Adam and he puts him into a garden, right? Once he puts him into a garden, and then he explains the garden a little bit. There's two trees in the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Both of these are actually good trees. Neither, one's not bad and one's not good. They're both good. They're just good in different ways, okay? Um, and then he explains the four rivers that flow out of Eden and basically go to the whole world, symbolically speaking. Um, but when we dive into the creation of Adam on the sixth day, it says that he formed him out of dust, right? Out of the dirt of the ground. In fact, Adam, Adam in Hebrew means dirt, right? So if you could see it, and, and I tell my kids this a lot when they're all dirty and just to remind them that God is the first one who ever played in the dirt, right? So when you're playing in the dirt and your kids come in all muddy and all that, say, ah, you're, you're imaging God very well here, right? He likes to play in the dirt. You should like to play in the dirt too. So he forms them and he breathes into his nostrils and then comes life. It is the spirit of God that brings life to Adam. One of the interesting things about this word dirt, uh, that it shows up again in Genesis. This is the first time. The second time it shows up is in Genesis chapter 3. When God is cursing or judging Satan and the woman and Adam, 
Remember what he tells, us, tells Satan. He says, you will slither on your belly and you will eat dirt. <laughs> and then all throughout the Bible, we see that Satan likes to devour people, right? We are made of dirt. We are dust. And the devil likes to devour dust. Peter talks about it as a roaring lion looking for one who he will devour. So when we have Adam made, and he says, let us make man in our image. This is back in chapter 1. One of the, the really neat things about this progression in Genesis chapter 1, as we come to the creation of Adam and Eve, is when God says, um, let there be light, that's an imperative, there's light. So let there be an expanse, imperative, there's an expanse. Imperative, 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 through days one through five. And we get to day six, and he says, let us make man in our image. That's actually not an imperative in, in, in the Septuagint, in the Greek Old Testament, right? That's not an imperative, it's a subjunctive. And a subjunctive is something that is not a command, it's not a statement of fact, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a process, it's a project that takes on. It's a, it's a verb that says, let us begin doing this thing. We're going to be creating, well, let's create this man in, in our image. This actually helps us understand what's going on with the, the Garden of Eden, particularly around the tree of knowledge and good and evil. I'm out of time, and I cannot finish this in time. Um, <laughs> around the knowledge of, of the, the, the two trees and the function that they play. Where the tree of life, they were able to take and eat. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil was not evil. It wasn't poisonous. But God said, no, you cannot do this. Um, but the idea is you can't do this now. When you get older, then you can have it. There's a maturity that takes place. And we see this brought out throughout the Old Testament and almost explicitly in, in Hebrews chapter 5, where to take hold of knowledge is to take hold of judgment. This is something that adults do. Kids cannot do, right? Kids have to learn, do not, do not taste, do not touch, you know, don't do this thing. As you get older, you, you have to have a discernment, a judgment of what is good and evil. Adam and Eve, or Adam particularly, thought he had life within, within himself. He didn't need the tree of life, and he was ready for knowledge. He wanted that fruit. He wanted to have the ability to discern, but that fruit was not for him yet, okay? So when we think about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't think of it as like this insidious tree with poison of sin going through the juices of the fruit. That's not what it was. Um, in fact, in the same verse, in verse 9, it says, I don't know if I have it here. In verse 9, it says that all the trees of the garden were good, Right? And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, good for, good for sight and food, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there as well, good for sight and good for food. In fact, Eve said, oh, it looks delicious, right? It was definitely good to the sight, and it was good for food. The problem was it wasn't hers or Adam's to take yet. So when they ate of that, and the fall came, this project of creating um, man in the image of God began to crumble and crack. The image of God isn't gone, but it's fractured. So the whole Old Testament is we find new Adams, new image bearers. Abraham is one. Well, Noah is one. Abraham is one. Moses is one. Elijah is one. Uh, David plays this sort of role. These new Adams, are they going to be able to be the image of God to fulfill this project of dominion and taking over and all of that? The answer is no. So we need a new Adam. 
right? Christ comes. He is the second Adam. He is the new Adam. He is the sinless one. He is the one who is in, made in the image of God, and he lives faithfully according to the image of God. And he does this perfectly where Adam failed. Satan tests Adam with fruit from a tree, and Adam fails. Satan tests Jesus in the wilderness with food to eat, and Jesus is victorious, right? He is victorious where the first Adam failed. He is the new Adam. He is the new head of creation, the federal head of creation. He goes to the cross to bear our sins, and upon the cross, he shouts out, it is finished. And I think there is a connection with it is finished to let us begin to make in Genesis 1. Let us make an image bearer, one who bears perfectly the image of God. And it no Adam can do it. So God himself puts on flesh. He comes. The second Adam goes to the cross, bears the sins of all of those ones who had fallen short before and all of those who are born in the first Adam who comes after, who believe in him. He bears that and he says, it is finished. The image of God is now here. So Christ is the perfect human. Right? He is the perfect image bearer. Sin throughout the Bible makes us less than human. We are like beasts before God, Asaph says. Right? We become less than human when we sin. It takes away from that. But Jesus is the perfect human, the perfect God, the perfect image bearer. I'll close with a very quick um, story to illustrate this. Ignatius, one of the church fathers, he was, he was arrested. He knew John and Peter. He was arrested for essentially being a, a hater, right? He didn't he stood against all of the, the propaganda of Rome, and he, wouldn't, he, didn't, he didn't go along with what Rome wanted to see happen with the culture. Uh, so they actually labeled him as a, a, a hater to the humanities or something like that. Um, and they arrested him in Antioch, and they brought him to Rome, which is really strange. You wouldn't do that. Um, and as they brought him to Rome, they were kind of showing him off, like, hey, we have our trophy um, arrest here. All you other Christians better beware. And as Ignatius is going to Rome, he's actually celebrating the fact, and he is anxious to get there. He actually writes these letters, and we can read these letters, and he tells his followers, don't try to break me out. I'm ready to die. I am ready to follow in Christ's footsteps. I'm ready to be more like Christ. And he's viewed his life theologically within the narrative of God's people, in the narrative of the Bible. And as he's moving closer, he actually writes that he wants his, his body to be Come grain that will be uh, milled so that it might go out and bread might come about, right? And he talked about his blood wanting to be like the, the sacrament sort of thing of the blood of Christ that will go and encourage and feed and do all this. So he saw himself filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions sort of thing in Colossians, as Paul talks about. Um, so he saw himself this way, and as he moves closer, he said, this process is actually how I become more truly human. That's how he viewed it. That as I walk in the steps of Christ, even to my death, if I live faithfully there, it's at that moment where I am more human than I could than any other time in my life because I'm walking faithfully in the steps of Christ. He understood what it was to be an image bearer of God, right? As he was being marched around, he proclaimed the image of God, and even in his death, saying, um, I am, I am being poured out for the church. My death is a witness to the church, as Christ was. And in that, I am more human than I ever have been. I think it's a fascinating little story. Um, if you want it, I can send it to you. All right. 
I will be happy to answer any questions or discuss any of this stuff, but I want to let us go because our babysitter's 